Hi, welcome back to the What's Cooking podcast. We are on the final episode of season three. It's gone so quickly. For this episode, we interviewed Sasha from Olio. Olio is a food sharing app and they're on a mission to reduce household and business food waste. Yeah, so Olio is an app but that on your phone but there is also a desktop version and essentially you plug in where, where what your location is and then it will show you people in your vicinity who it will show you listings of mainly food items which people have surplus or if people are going away and they know they're not going to use this item they've tried something and they didn't like it they'll pass it on to someone who either needs it more than them or would enjoy it more than them and it is just a really fantastic tool and Sasha mentions that their plan really is to reach a billion users worldwide in the next sort of seven or eight years and just thinking of the impact that would have on the world and how much food waste would be reduced just by by the existence of their app alone is quite staggering. We went to visit Sasha in North London to record the episode and that is where Olio actually started out. They had a sort of proof of concept, they had a run of the app in a different way. Sasha explains it within the episode. It's how they tested that the app would work and people would actually use it. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear how they were really out there promoting it themselves from the very beginning, how it's grown from from those roots. It was really interesting to meet Sasha and hear about her and her business partner Tessa's background in business and finance. And it really shows through when she's talking about the business that that experience has underpinned what they've been doing and probably had some... Yeah, and what they've achieved, really, with the app. It's grown out of that experience, but also a passion for reducing food waste and the impact of that on the environment. Yeah, and you, I mean, the passion really comes across in everything Sasha says. And the way she says it, there's no doubt that this is something that they are going to push forwards and forwards and make a massive success of. Listen to the end for a little challenge we have for you and I'm going to put a little clip of how I got on with the challenge at the end. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here it is. So hi Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having so me. So good to have you. What was your first ever job? Oh gosh, um, I'm one of those people that had at least a dozen sort of micro businesses when I was a kid. Um, I didn't really get an allowance. My allowance was um, $2 a week and $1.50 had to go into long-term savings that I got when I was 18. So um, I basically had to be very, um, I guess, resourceful. Um, I used to um, collect tin cans on the beach and trade them in. In the U.S., you get a nickel for each. I got hundreds of dollars doing that. Um, I used to braid people's hair and do their makeup and run um, um, like an illegal sweets um, shop out of my locker um, in elementary school. Um, my first sort of job job would have been when I was 11 or 12. I detasseled corn for the summer. That's something they do in Iowa, where I'm from, which is one of the biggest corn producers in the US. 
and you go out sort of at dawn and you basically take down all of the corn stalks that are broken so that the tractors can go through without getting clogged. Um, you're covered in dirt and bugs and um, it's a horrible, horrible job, but it pays really, really well. I worked at McDonald's um, when I was 15 at the drive-thru. I waited tables. I've had a lot of jobs over the years. That's incredible. Yeah, the corn job sounds like sounds really cool. <laughs> but like, like hard work. There were two types of um, uh, detasseling offers um, or jobs. You could sit on a tractor that sort of went slowly through the field, um, and then you know while you're seated above the corn, you can sort of pick up or push down the stalks that are broken, mm. and that paid minimum wage. Or you could contract for a certain number of um, acres that you would personally detassel on foot, and that was a fixed amount. So basically, to make a lot of money, like in a very short period of time, like $1,000 in one week, you could just go out there and work 20-hour days for a week and then sort of hit the jackpot. But while you were doing it, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. But, you know, my parents are both really into, you know, there's no substitute for sort of um, learning the value of hard work um, and they put us out there at a very young age mm. I'm grateful for that very grateful amazing to earn that kind of money at that age there aren't that many <laughs> jobs that you can earn kind of at that, that age for yeah. sure no yeah. had you worked before launching the app had you worked in food or tech before um <laughs> no is the short answer um obviously those were all jobs that I had when I was sort of a preteen or a teenager, and sure. um, I followed a very traditional corporate career after university. In some ways, that was in response to my upbringing, um, in which I didn't really have financial security in my family. So I went, um, I worked as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. I um, went and I got my um, MBA, and then after that, I worked as a consultant at McKinsey, and then I was spent six years in American Express in business development and strategy. So at that point, I felt like I had a very bulletproof CV. No matter what happened, I would be able to get a good job. Um, and um, I took a break. Um, I started my own business, um, which was a pay-as-you-go high street childcare provider. So basically flexible by-the-hour childcare for parents who maybe had an irregular work schedule or even stay-at-home moms who just needed some time to themselves. Um, and that gave me the entrepreneurial bug. Um, once I did that, I realized I could never go back to a corporate job. I loved it so much. Um, it was I worked 100 hours a week, didn't get paid at all, basically, um, and poured my heart and soul into something and brought it to life. And so um, once I got that up to being self-managing and self-profitable, uh, um, which would have been sort of 2014, um, I took a step back um, and I I thought, okay, what do I want to do next? Um, and at that same time, my co-founder, Tessa, who's one of my best friends, went to business school with me. She was also in a sort of crossroads in her career. And um, we began actively looking for an environmental challenge that we could tackle at scale, leveraging technology. Um, and we did a sweeping sort of study of the landscape uh, of opportunities and failed to find anything. But Tessa had a personal experience during that time, which was the, or, or, you know, which, which brought Oleo to life. Um, and that was that she was moving house. Um, she was moving back from Switzerland, where she was living, moving back to the UK. And on moving day, she found herself with some perfectly good produce, some sweet potatoes and cabbages, and the removal men were not going to let her pack them and bring them back to the, to the UK. So it was the middle of winter. She bundled up her kids, went out on the street, tried to find someone to give the food to, 
and she failed. Um, and she couldn't bring herself to knock on her neighbor's door. She didn't know them. She was there sort of on a secondment. Um, and she ended up sort of smuggling them in her suitcase and bringing them back rather than letting them go to waste. And that was the real aha moment when she told me that story. Um, we both, from our backgrounds, um, have like a deep, deep aversion to waste of any kind um, and go to, go to great irrational lengths to avoid throwing away something that has value. Um, and so within an hour of her telling me that story, um, at the end of, at the end of January, 2015, we had formed the company, named the company and, um, and made a plan. That's a very long answer to, uh, no, that's that's such a good idea. Where's the name come from? So, um, we, or I Googled, um, synonym for hodgepodge, um, and hodgepodge oleo is a miscellaneous assortment of things. Um, so that is an, you know, an oleo of food at the buffet. Um, it's also a Mediterranean stew, a bit like a kitchen sink stew where you pour, put, you know, whatever needs eating up um, in it. And it's also something to do with a curtain call or something. But we just really liked the sound of it. Um, it sounds attractive. It doesn't sound like waste. The O's for us are very symbolic, circular economy, the planet. Um, it really was less than an hour from sort of idea confirming that we were going to do this and, and naming it, we just instantly thought that's the right name for us. And now it's a verb, which we're really proud of. You know, people say, I'm going to oleo that, or they say... Mm, that's cool. Yeah, which is really cool. And our community has come up with that on their own, um, and I don't know, it's like just a hip factor or something that feels like we've made it. Yeah. All else fails, at least we have a verb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great. No, it is a great name. It's very memorable and catchy and yeah it's cool thank you we both just feel like it's such a needed and great sort of resource cool yeah it's a common feeling isn't it you just can't bear to throw something that's perfectly good but mm. you're not able to use it and um we so two things one in the very beginning we did some research which was backed up with a YouGov poll um, and what we found is that more than one in three people feel physically pained um, throwing away food that um, is or recently was edible. Um, and there's a lot of sort of science and biology and, um, around that. You know, as a species, we didn't evolve to throw away things that um, are valuable. Um, it feels horrible to do that. And we also are tribal and we evolved to share food with each other. And um, as a species, that's one of the key reasons that we've been successful. Um, so it's a very profoundly human, cross-cultural sort of hatred of, of waste um, and, and joy of sharing. However, unfortunately, over a third of all food produced globally does go to waste. Um, and recent figures have come out last week, actually, showing that this is increasing year on year. Um, it's, in fact, project, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's pretty dramatically not going in the right direction, which is a problem because it's a huge waste of resources, right? Um, it's obviously there's the food, but then the water, the land, the labor, um, the energy, 25% uh, of the world's fresh water supply goes to grow food that's never eaten. Um, and meanwhile, we have droughts, etc. And then, in, you know, it's also, um, food waste is also third largest contributor to climate change, which is obviously a really pressing issue. So that then twinned with the sort of the moral scandal of the fact that nearly a billion people go to bed hungry every day. And our view is that we, you know, this... It's not sustainable, whichever way you look at it, not to mention we have two and a half billion people joining the planet in the next 25 years. Um, so it's going to become something that um, 
all of these all of these trends are coming into direct conflict with each other within our lifetime. And um, in places like the UK and many developed countries, over half of food waste takes place in the home. So we have to acknowledge that we have personal responsibility and that one carrot or one cupcake at a time, this collectively, 65 million people in the country, this is collectively adding up to something that is a force, a force for, well, which is basically an unsustainable food system um, that's going to have to be fixed in our, in our, in our lifetime. So, um, without belaboring the point, you know, we just think that giving someone some, giving people a tool um, that hopefully is more fun than throwing something in the bin, um, and encouraging people to share every which bit of food they have that could otherwise, that you know, would go to waste but could otherwise be eaten, um, that collectively we can make a difference. That's what I love about the app as well is that you can just upload one carrot, you know it would be difficult to get someone to collect it for redistribution. There's lots of amazing charities that do that. They're not going to pick up an onion, but you could put that on the app and someone could pick it up, which is amazing. And like you said, one person doing that in every single household, that is going to build up for sure. This is currently, I know this podcast, you can't see it, but Tesco brought me their own brand refried beans. And I'm very particular about my refried beans. So this is... um, it's waiting for a collection. It's a, well, yeah, it's waiting for a collection. I put three apples on two days ago, and I got four requests within an hour. And I even said, slightly bruised. <laughs> um, so there's no shortage of people, hungry or otherwise, just simply practical people, people on a budget, people that want to meet their neighbors, who are willing to, to collect food. So how did you go from having that idea and that concept and the name to actually implementing it, building an app, so Tess and I, and to be fair, we do have, I guess, over 30 years of experience sort of in, in business um, between us, um, but we um, are both the primary breadwinners in our family. So that was a concern. We had to sit down and come up with um, a plan that gave us, and we're also not risk seekers, believe it or not, um, but we felt that we could take one year out of the workforce and we could put in, each put in a part of our savings. And if we didn't, and we set a, mi- a, mi- um, a milestone for what we needed to achieve, um, and if we didn't achieve that within a year, we would get, we would give up, and we would go back to our corporate job. So we had this sort of felt like this, I think, safety in the plan that we'd come up with. And what we did, um, how do we go from? Okay, so in February we incorporated the company. Twenty fifteen. Um, very quickly we. Um, did some market research to validate um, the idea, just using SurveyMonkey and posting that on Facebook groups all over the place. From the survey, which hundreds and hundreds of people filled out, and we tried to get local people to do it because it's obviously a local initiative, and we're both in North London, and we really focused on getting sort of local people to complete the survey. And from the survey, we identified 12 people who were, were like, this is an amazing idea, it should have happened yesterday, how can I help? We would have been willing to go ahead and launch the app without validating the idea at all, but we've both been to business school and it would have been ignoring like best practice to not like at least try and properly validate the idea. So we took those 12 people and we put them in a WhatsApp group for two weeks and we said the only objective is to add food that you're not going to eat and if someone, if someone, if, if someone else wants it, you know, private message, go and pick it up. I sort of waited with bated breath and within minutes someone added a bag of shallots and that was it. Over the next two weeks, I think there were 26 exchanges 
um, between neighbors, and then we debriefed with all of them. And what they all said was that reality was the app didn't need to be much better than a WhatsApp group. Um, and so that, um, and that they loved it, and that we should actually go ahead and build it. Um, so we found a development agency in Bristol called Simple Web, who are amazing. Um, and they um, basically built the first version of the app and took a small equity stake in Olio. Therefore, we paid significantly less um, for the first version of the app to be built. And we stood out on the street corner with food that we had collected from businesses that was going to be thrown away, offering it to passerbys in exchange for their email address and a conversation about whether or not they wanted to sign up for this when we launched. So between sort of March and July when we launched, we got 2,200 signatures um, or email addresses. And on the, we had 30 people that we identified as like extreme advocates who wanted to be ambassadors and help us um, be volunteers and help us sort of get this, bring this thing to life. So on the day we launched, we had our volunteers lined up. We had 2,200 people to email, um, most of them local. Um, and we obviously, when they opened the app for the first time, we needed to have food there. So we got all kinds of food that had been donated and, you know, got all of our volunteers to list items. And then we sort of, you know, ignited it. And we, we managed it very carefully in the beginning. You know, if someone, we basically had a circle around where we live, which is about a 15 minute walk in any direction. And no one could add food outside of that circle. Because we believed it was incredibly important that people went to the effort of sharing. And it is quite a weird thing to take a picture of, you know, a broccoli head and put it on the, on the, on the app. But we believed that if, um, if someone went to that effort, they need to have a positive first experience so they continue to use it, tell their friends, etc. So everyone who listed anything in the beginning had a successful collection. Either from us, our partners, you know, our dogs, whatever, like our <laughs> volunteers... So it was a very, any marketplace, because it's effectively a marketplace for free food, any marketplace, um, anything that's hyper-local, you need to be able to, to do that, to manually basically make it work. And it wasn't long before it just snowballed. But that, that when we had about 600 users, or 300 users, because obviously not everyone signed up, even though they said they loved it, um, somehow, somewhere, the BBC heard about us, and we were on BBC London, and that just really, through luck, really, um, catapulted us into the new dimension. We were able to get funding. Once we got funding, we knew we weren't going back to our regular jobs because the funding gave us a salary. So we bootstrapped for about nine months, but then we had a proper salary. We were able to hire a team. So in October 2015, we went from two people to nine. And fast forward now, I guess, we launched across the UK January 2016, made it available globally October later that year. And now we've just crossed 600,000 signed-up users who have collectively shared about 800,000 portions of food, or meals, however you want to identify call it, successfully. So those are like the successful exchanges. And we've seen food sharing in 32 countries successfully. Um, and that's down to our grassroots volunteer model. Um, we've had 22,000 people reach out to volunteer. They don't all become active, obviously, but thousands of them have. And they take a playbook, um, like, you know, instructions, marketing materials. We give them a community so they can support each other, and they go out and they incubate food sharing networks in their neighborhood all around the world. And that's why um, that model has worked really well to sort of to just help us have, I guess, international reach. But our, we're really focused on London still. Yeah, but like you said, it's a still a shared experience that you can have in a different country. There's still 
and you still want to share food and no one wants it to waste. Like you said, it's a universal experience. I mean, so we, we really believe that we're going to be at a billion users within, um, I don't know, seven to ten years. Like, that's what we're shooting for. Like, there is no reason that it's, it's, it's not possible for us to continue wasting food or anything else, really, at the, at the scale and rate at which we do. And it will become taboo, just like not recycling. Well, we're still not quite there yet, but, you know, big, big yes, shift. Yeah. We used to throw, I remember as a kid, we'd just throw our trash out the window when we were driving down the street. Just, you know, that was normal. That's what you did. You know, if I have a hard time restraining myself from sort of shouting at someone if I see them drop a candy, <laughs> unless they're scary looking, I usually give them a, you know... You do, they're like, excuse me, you have to drop, drop something. Yeah. 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 Sorry, you just threw your coffee cup out of yeah. the car. I don't know if you meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. I saw someone do that the other day. Like, <laughs> but, you know, even however long ago, people smoked in pubs, people smoked in hospitals. Mm. Um, there's a lot of things that, as a society, if we collectively decide it's not acceptable or it becomes taboo, you know, then that's just... The new, the new way and the new normal, I think, will have to include significantly less waste. Yeah, you saying that just makes me think, what if everyone had this app like it was Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp, you know, those apps that yeah, billions yeah. of people yeah. have. That would just yeah. be amazing. And why not? Because yeah. as you say, there's no reason why everyone shouldn't be doing this mm. with some, you know, with something. And it can, as you say, it can go beyond food. But even, you know, everyone has food that they can't mm. eat at mm. some point. It should just come with your iPhone, like the <laughs> podcast app. Yeah, yeah. No, we're definitely, yeah. yeah we're okay. working on that one. <laughs> um, and also local governments, we work with a lot with, with local governments, and now we're starting to get some interest from even national governments. Because they're, you know, um, I think the municipal, you know, the municipal waste bill in, from local authorities in the UK I think it's close to a billion pounds or something a year. Um, and 30 to 40% of that, by weight, is food waste. And it goes to landfill, you know, it converts into methane. It, it's just, it's not good for anyone. Um, so it's, in, it's highly in the interest of local governments to let their citizens know about oleo. It helps with social isolation. It helps small businesses as well who want to have volunteers collect their own sold food at the end of the day. Um, reduces their waste bill, helps them to promote their brand in the local community, and it, they are obviously struggling as well to um, deal with the, the vulnerable people in their area. Um, so it does help vulnerable people get access to food in an anonymous and stigma-free way. Mm -hmm. um, fresh food, often as well. So it's a quadruple win. Um, and so we are starting to see quite a bit of government interest in, in wanting to spread the word. A few, a few local authorities have actually... Um, employed coordinators to try and get local citizens signed up. That's great. Did you, so when the app first kind of got out there, were there any obstacles with its running or the logistics or practicalities that you encountered? There are constantly bugs with the app, constantly. Um, and we've had a very small team of developers. And you're always firefighting something being broken um, and that's because and I'm not a I don't have a technical background so but you know you write the code but you don't invent all the wheels yourself you plug in to hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of different bits of code that provide fonts or provide messaging or provide GPS and so 
you not only have to keep, and then of course the phone providers, you know, Apple and Android, they're constantly updating their software as well. So there's just things that break all the time for some segment of the population or, you know, some segment of the user base. And I think when you're subscale, that, you know, that can, that can be quite difficult to, to manage. I mean, the biggest challenge and still remains our biggest challenge is getting people to add something for the first time. People hate food waste, and that's why they sign up. It's very clear. We've surveyed them. They love Olio. Um, you know, they'll vote for us in competitions. They'll, you know, they'll participate. Um, but, but getting, translating that, converting that goodwill into action, um, consumer behavior change, um, is incredibly difficult. Once they do, once someone does list something and has a positive experience, which happens the vast majority of the time, they stay around and they keep listing, they keep listing, they keep listing. And so we have tried, you know, sort of every tactic that we can think of um, to motivate people to list for the first time, and we haven't cracked it. Um, and it's hard, you know, consumer behavior change, at, um, mainstream consumer behavior change is hard. So our early adopters are all very gung-ho, um, but they're, you know, if we want to have the impact that we hope to have, we need to somehow break through. And what we do see is that people, so the most effective thing, although it's takes a, 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 it's a journey and it takes a while for it to, to work, is what we found is, is if we try and secure the unsold food that is donated from businesses that is not suitable for charitable collection. So often there's many great charities who are collecting food from, from um, businesses who donate it, but late on a Friday night, used by food today um, in ad hoc inconsistent quantities, hot food, it's the charitable sector is not set up to redistribute that food. Um, so we have a food-based heroes program um, where trained volunteers collect the unsold food, take it straight home, add it to the app, and their neighbors come and collect it, usually within an hour or two. This is high-quality, attractive food that had a price tag on it just an hour ago. Planet Organic is one of our biggest partners. You can imagine the just gorgeous array of food that they donate every day. Um, Pret-a-Manger, Leon, lots of different businesses. Anyway, long story is put that food on the app. Um, even the most skeptical person is like, okay, wait, there's free food on the app. Download the app. They collect the food. They go to their neighbor's house. They see that it's clean. They see that their neighbor's lovely. They get some free food. That's a wonderful experience. Um, and it opens their mind to then potentially um, requesting food that is from a domestic kitchen. So... Obviously, things that are in date or in, in packets and unopened is, are not, it doesn't take much of a mindset shift to collect that type of food. But the reality is a lot of food waste is, you know, a half a tub of yogurt right before I go to holiday. Or, um, you know, I have a barbecue and there's three tubs of hummus, you know. And that, and that you, need, you know, you would go to someone's house and you would dip your carrot in a tub of hummus without thinking about it. But then to go and collect that tub of hummus after someone else, you know, it's, it, it, there is a bit of a mindset shift for the average person, not for everyone, for the average person. Anyway, long story short, again, sorry, I feel like I'm battling, um, is that we see this evolution in people's thinking where they collect from a neighbor packaged food or um, rel you know, relatively normal food. Then that opens their mind to taking food that um, is more like from someone's kitchen or an extra portion of lasagna or something like that. And then they feel the need to reciprocate. And I think that's hardwired in us, this need to reciprocate and to give back. And then they become someone who shares their own food. Um, and we have seen this migration from requesting 
business food to requesting household food to becoming a lister themselves. And, it, you know, it can take a number of months, but I think that's a really positive trend. Yeah, that's mm. super interesting how it works like that. And I wonder if people feel a bit self-conscious initially about going to collect something like a lasagna because you, maybe you feel undeserving of it or you're not the priority or something. Would that be a, a feeling? Yeah, there's a lot of psychology at play. Mm. Um, one thing we have no shortage of is requesters. Okay. Um, like, literally, just there seems to be an insatiable appetite for free food, mm. lasagna or otherwise. Yeah. I think that if you're coming from a position of abundance, there's certainly a, am I going to displace um, the, you know, does someone need this more than me type of mentality? But... You know, it's sort of just all sorts it out, self out. And we don't need more people to, to request food. We need more people to add. People and businesses? Just and bus- Yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, $1.2 trillion worth of food waste out there every year, um, which is 1.6 trillion tons of food. And, um, you know, here, here in the UK, households alone throw out 13 million pounds sterling of perfectly edible food, approximately a quarter of your weekly grocery shop goes in the bin. So the big, the, the opportunity for impact, environmental impact, which is really our ultimate motivation, is reducing, preventing, redistributing household food waste. Um, businesses are naturally incentive, you know, incented to, incentivized to reduce the food waste from the supply chain as much as possible. Um, so it's, it's easy for people, like they see supermarkets or they see a skip, you know, full of fake sandwiches on TV or something to think that lot, the waste all takes place at the, you know, the hospitality sector or the retail level, but actually retail is less than 5%, hospitality is less than 10%. So there's just way more than enough food all around to feed everyone 10 times over. It's just getting it. It's just redistributing it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Getting the rice in the right place. You're mm. so right, though. I, I was really surprised when I heard that, that it's more domestic waste than business because you, you do just assume that it's at that, you know, industry level. Because the quantities level. are so, so much bigger. And I think with recent programmes or, you know, programmes mm. in the last few years on the BBC and documentaries, I think that has fed into that idea that, yeah, there's skips and skips of parsnips and whatnot being thrown away. But, yeah, to have that figure of household waste, it brings it back to tell us that, yeah, there is a lot of personal responsibility Mm. as well. RAT, which is the government organisation, recently did a bunch of, I guess, consumer research, and over 60% of people polled said they had no food waste. Um, So it's just like 80% of people think they're above average drivers. It's just this inability to, you know... Think of yourself as an individual versus millions and millions of other people um, or to sort of see see what you're doing with regard to food waste is something that often seems so little, right? It's like, mm. I've got two brown bananas there, which are not going to go to waste, but they're, um, you know, they're only 10p each or something, mm. right? So it's hard to get too attached to, um, to food, especially if it's um, really cheap, which yeah. food, ha- food prices yeah. have decreased significantly. Um, as part of your total personal um, budget versus sort of 50 years ago. Mm. Yeah, it used to be about 50% or something, and now it's about 10%. I think that's about something that's the right directional. Which, yeah, yeah, and food prices haven't 
really increased hugely for farmers or growers, producers. It's a strange, it's a strange system at the moment, and yet we kind of talked about it a little bit before, and yet increasing it would price would make it no longer accessible. Yeah. So you're at a very sticky situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the answer is there, but I'm very interested in, yeah, that space. Well, it seems like it is changing in some areas, and it will be interesting to see how it's almost finding that middle ground for you know food that's produced well with good ethics mm. and really cheap food that mm. doesn't really have great nutritional value. Yeah. And how you get those to a place where everyone has access yeah. to them. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, I think the food system is incredibly complex. Mm. Um, you know, and it's a lot of perishable foods. And obviously it's um, something that every human on the planet um, relies on. Um, and it's a globalized system as well. So there's just not one answer to it. Mm. You know. It's yeah. interesting, though, thinking about the cost of food and you know it would be interesting to to see kind of 50 years ago versus now what mm. you know how much the household sort of food waste was because you're right it does make you do kind of equate something's importance with how much you've paid for it yeah. mm. but but that doesn't bear a relation on its impact yeah. and that's I guess it's kind of getting that's the awareness isn't mm. it so tell us a bit about the process of finding investment for Olio. Well, I think that Tessa and I, given that we have quite a lot of experience in the business world, have a really good network, which has been an advantage for us. Um, so our initial um, seed investment, which we got in October 2015, did... Um, we we knew that investor through a personal previous previous professional experience. Tessa had worked with Excel. Excel is the investor who came in. It was unusual for them to invest in such an early stage company, but the reality is it's such an enormous problem. It's a huge oppor- a problem can also be looked at as an opportunity. Um, as I mentioned somewhere uh, earlier, you know, 1.2 trillion dollars worth of food goes to waste every year. So. Whoever can figure out how to unlock some of that value, um, and it will be a wide variety of players well beyond Olio. Um, but it's just such, it's a huge price. Um, and it's one of the, um, um, there's a lot of room for um, technology to to make the food system more efficient and unlock some of that value. So there's been a ton of, it's a very hot space right now. There's been a ton of investment going into businesses, whether they're B2B marketplaces, um, whether they're, you know, restaurants or discounting apps or there's just a flood of investment into um, the food waste space. Oleo is the world's only neighbor-to-neighbor food sharing app, um, but we get people reaching out to us weekly from around the world saying, oh, I was going to, I was just about to build Oleo, uh, but I found that you've had it, uh, but you've already built it. And we convert them. We say, don't go to the effort. It's hard. Okay, I'm happy to tell you how hard it is. Why don't you take Oleo um, and run with it in your community? Because a lot of people aren't necessarily wanting to do it um, for the business potential or the technic, you know, because they or have the technical skills. They just want to see the impact. They just want to have it um, only in their neighborhood. Anyway, so I think the enormity of the problem that we are solving, combined with being relatively business savvy and having good networks, made the first investment relatively straightforward, although we were incredibly lucky. Um, and since then, um, Tessa, my co-founder, who's the CEO, um, you know, she spends half of her time all year long fundraising. 
Um, and that means meeting with investors, building relationships with investors, keeping existing investors up to happy um, and informed and involved. And um, it's when you have a startup, um, someone, usually the CEO, needs to be spending half of their time fundraising. And I think a lot of times people underestimate um, what what um, how, just what a big job it is. We've now raised three rounds, um, and every time, and and I would say that we probably are, you know. We listen to all the podcasts. We read all the books. We do everything. We're you know overachieving, a type A personalities, right? Um, we're not leaving anything to chance. We start fundraising months in advance before everyone thinks that we should. It still comes down to the wire, and it still gets to that point where you're like, uh oh, I might need to have to you know let staff go. I might need to stop taking a salary. I'm you know how do I plan for this? So it's a roller coaster, and it takes a lot, a lot of time and effort. And the app is free to use, free to download. Yes. So how are you able to sort of monetize the business? Obviously, you need to pay your team and pay yourselves. How are you able to do that? We just started monetizing um, at the beginning of the year. And we did that through our Food Base Heroes program, um, whereby we provide a service to retailers, um, food businesses, um, that have food that they're throwing away. And they pay us to recruit, train, organize, and manage volunteers to collect that unsold food um, at the end of the day. That's been fantastic um, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, it's helped us to be revenue generating um, at least a little bit, which is really good to be able to demonstrate to potential investors. It helps us get more food into the ecosystem. But that's not our sort of big idea, and eventually we will need to be profitable um, and self-sustaining. Right now, obviously, we've reduced investment, which is how we're funding the team. And our plan is probably sometime next year um, to begin experimenting with a freemium model. And that's like the same type of freemium model that um, Spotify or Dropbox or any other um, app really um, does, whereby a small portion of the users pay a subscription to get access to premium features. Something that's really important is that we're not restricting access to the food, Right, so the idea is that the basic version and the premium version um, would still have access to all the listings, but there are certain features which we might only include in the premium version of the app. For example, a search functionality. Um, this is especially important for our non-food section. Um, we, that's a feature request that we get a lot. Probably be a bundle of premium features, um, which are part of the premium subscription-based model. And we haven't quite figured out which features will go in there. But we do like to emphasize that being inclusive is one of our core company values, and we it would it would not be it would it would not be a smart thing to do um, to try to um, start uh, charging for the listings. The businesses who donate food wouldn't like that. The volunteers who collect the food wouldn't like it, and it would prevent people who maybe need the food the most from getting access to the food, and it would probably result in some food waste. So that's not the plan. Yeah, it wouldn't make mm-hmm. sense with your ethos. There's certainly, certainly, like, looking out when we're in the hundreds of millions of users, which is part of the plan in a couple of years, to think about hyper-local advertising as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, what, what we currently have um, brainstormed on is an offers section, whereby any business that has excess capacity or inventory can issue to the local community a time-bound offer. So, very basic example, the day after Valentine's Day, a florist is swimming in roses. And, you know, they want to broadcast an offer to the community. They can put it on their sandwich board, 
They can put it on their Facebook page. There's not really any other way to just let everyone know in the village, like mm -hmm. I live in Crouch End, stop by, you're going to get raises for, uh, roses for 75% off. And there's all kinds. If you think about restaurants who have canceled tables and um, hair salons that are sitting empty half the day, and you know, um, as, a pre as a small business owner myself, um, the way that you got the word out was by putting flyers through people's door, um, which is not very efficient. Uh, but it's the reason people keep doing that is because there's not really any other method. So I think there is a hyperlocal opportunity there. And our users, first of all, they hate waste. There are, a lot of them are bargain hunters. Um, and they really care about supporting like small businesses in the local community. Um, so I think that that would be something that's well-received. But there's, it's also something we can't really do until we're at scale. And we're so hyper-focused now on getting to scale. And that, the reason for that is because the denser the network of people then the lower the threshold for sharing. So I, in my community, this crouch end, this is where we launched, um, you know, I can share three apples or I've shared a grapefruit before and someone will pop across the street to pick it up. Um, but places where we're less dense, you know, people are only going to travel so far to collect something that's of a certain value to them. But as I mentioned previously, most food waste is small micro quantities. So to have to facilitate the efficient redistribution of the food that is wasted the most frequently, like a quarter of a loaf of bread or two lemons, etc., you need to have a really dense network of people, by definition. So we're really focused on getting to that. Yeah, that's that makes total sense. You and Tessa are the co-founders, mm -hmm. and then who joined you? You mentioned you grew from two to nine. Is it? We grew from two to nine, um, and we are now in the process of doubling the team. Um, and we'll be at 20 by the end of the year. Um, so, um, for, but for, two, for, for over two years, there's a core team of nine. Three on the tech team, one in marketing and analytics, and then three on um, the network team. And by network, that means uh, managing our volunteers, our businesses, um, and our user base. And Tessa, as the CEO, looks after strategy, you know, sort of you know, she has the big vision. Um, I'm the CEO, COO, and I execute. Um, so I'm the one that puts the wheels in motion. And now the new people that are joining the team, we have quite a few people joining the tech, the tech team, which has been just severely under-resourced and really excited because there's all of these features that we want to be able to introduce um, and all of these bugs that we want to be able to fix. And it's just going to be amazing to have that um, sort of increased firepower on the technical side. Um, and then we've hired some business development and account managers for the Food Waste Hero part of the organization. Um, we have 1,500 Food Waste Heroes collecting from hundreds of businesses on a weekly basis, and one person has been managing all of that. Um, and he's about to... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just at... He's, at his limit, and we have expanded his team so we can provide, um, you know, services so we can manage those volunteers and expand that program a lot. Having basically having we had the same team of nine for two years, we did everything we could think of with our existing resources and budget, uh, everything, and we got to the point where it's like not really much left to try. I mean, we've discovered lots of um, strategies and tactics and things that worked. But now that we have all this new firepower coming on the team, and we have a new budget because we've recently raised quite a large round of funding, we're going to get to try you know, some really exciting things to get people to sign up, to encourage people to add, um, and just really grow 
grow quickly. Um, mm. So I'm quite excited about that. What kind of training do you offer for the food waste heroes? We have an online training process which you have to complete and then take a quiz at the end of it to and get 100% to confirm that you have the basic understanding of food safety. Um, and then we have sort of a weekly email communication that goes out to them with reminding them of the most important things. Um, and then we also force them through a training refresh, um, which I think is every six months. The reality is the training is pre it's pretty basic. There's certain, depending on what type of food it is, well, first of all, you can't give food away past the use-by date. No. There's like seven rules that you need to memorize yeah. um, to be able to handle food safely. Don't store food on the floor. They're relatively straightforward. It is actually an area, though, that has been under-resourced, and we've, we're hiring, or we have hired someone who's going to be looking after customer satisfaction and compliance. And by compliance, I mean really taking a look to make sure that we've adequately trained and de-risked all of our operators, you know, trained all our employees and our volunteers, and we've de-risked our operations um, to make sure that, and put in checks and balances to make sure that nothing goes wrong. Yeah, no one's going to get ill. Nothing goes wrong, yeah. And we did spend a year developing a food safety management system, working with our primary authority, like the primary environmental health authority, it's complicated how it works, um, but also with input from the Food Standards Agency and our food safety advisor, lawyer. So developing, because what we're doing is not been done before, the rules didn't really apply. So we had to, we have to operate within the rules, so we had to work with all of the decision makers to develop a new set of rules so that they would feel comfortable that there's been sufficient training, that there's been that they don't need to worry that there's a health risk. Mm. But then our insurers, as, as you can imagine as well, want to make sure that the people, that, you know, the primary authority has signed off on our processes and training, et cetera, so that they also feel comfortable insuring us for public liability and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's been a really steep learning curve. And it's, and it's one of the things that I think will prevent others. Of course we want, of course we want more food to be shared, right? Um, so it's not like we don't want any competition. And in some ways, competition could be fantastic because it helps to normalize food sharing. But it is a barrier to entry. Um, there's a lot of work that's gone into, especially on the, the business donating to volunteers, redistributing to people in the community. There's a lot of work that's gone into governing that. Um, and then also, you know, having to think about how you work with your volunteers to enable them to identify potentially people who are really in need and need signposting to other services. I mean, there's, mm. we haven't done enough, and there's a lot more that we want to do to empower the volunteers to do more some, in some instances than just giving free food um, and to be more, I guess, of a... You're equipped with knowledge of the local area and what's available. Yeah, and what services might be available. Yeah. Um, you know, if... For the volunteers, if they're seeing someone over and over and over, and they, but, but they might actually benefit from some type of intervention, maybe they recognize signs of domestic abuse, maybe they, you know, there's different, besides just give, that volunteer in that situation wants to be able to say, you know, actually, I know where the local, local place is, here's their number. So there, yeah. this is a ways away, but I think there's an opportunity to have even a greater impact in the community beyond food.
I think as a volunteer as well, you you want to feel that empowerment that you know what's going on and you're able to to signpost someone to. I think yeah. if you're not quite sure, you don't want to give away that information because you don't want to say something wrong. But if you're empowered with it, then yeah. you're much more able to. Uh, the volunteers, many of them have regulars, which is absolutely fine, because um, often it's food that's collected late at night, needs to be eaten same day, and um, and they get to know those people, I mean, uh, around Christmas, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of Christmas cards exchanged between volunteers, people that they give food to, and volunteers in the businesses, and that's what, what that's what I think one of the most special things about Oleo, is there's a real sense of community, it's not just the transaction. Which for is sure. something that's really missing as well. For mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, if there are so many people, loneliness is such a big issue. And to be able to do something to help that as well is really amazing. I mean, the UK just appointed a minister of loneliness. Mm. Um, and I was just listening to Homo sapiens. Um, and um, I think they basically suicide, there were 800,000 suicides last year or the year before. And um, just only, only 620,000 deaths through human violence like terrorism and war mm. etc which is a real shift right mm. because historically and we are now going deep but historically war and human violence has been the greatest sort of killer um but depression suicide mental health problems loneliness this is definitely a plague um a modern plague um and a lot of times you know, feeling isolated in your community is it doesn't help so yeah you can yeah. be in an enormous community of London mm. and be lonely absolutely it mm. abstract it seems like it wouldn't work like that and I've yeah I've read lots of really sad statistics about loneliness being an early factor of death and and it just having a wider impact on your life and stress and in mm. all sorts of other ways and yeah I think the sharing element of your app certainly I'm sure is helping people. We get so many emails and I mean often people say what keeps you going and what mm-hmm. keeps you motivated and it's the anecdotal emails that people take the time and effort to send and write to us. Lots of times there's people who've been housebound or have been you know deeply depressed and people write to us and say that they've you know for the first time in a long time they felt I don't know included in their community um, that they felt they've had purpose especially the volunteers, and those, I really do believe, and I know that we're making a difference in, in thousands of people's lives on, on a daily basis, um, and that's above, you know, above climate change, above everything else, that's incredibly motivating. Yeah, that's very touching. Apart from, obviously, using Olio, mm-hmm. what are things that we as a society can do to mm-hmm. tackle food waste? We can shop more frequently in smaller quantities. Many people, I mean, meal planning can be very helpful as well, um, but if you actually follow your meal plans. Um, so, you know, have an honest conversation with yourself. We see a lot of people who maybe shop, meal plan and shop on Sunday and come Thursday. It's like, screw it, I'm getting the takeout, right? So meal planning, shopping in smaller quantities, um, Teaching your children now, like teaching children how to cook. A lot of people just don't know how to cook. And Tesco last, a couple months ago, lifted or removed Best Before, which is an indicator of quality. Best Before from 70 of their fruit and veg, um, including things like lemons. That's good. Potatoes. But 
if we don't teach people how to see tell if a lemon's still good to eat, and frankly, a lemon's good to eat for a very long time. Okay, see the wax ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we edu- educate our children on how to figure out, use common sense about what when food is safe and not safe to eat. Encourage um, demand of the people. So if you think if you're an office manager, or even if you're not an office manager, but you work in an office. Now, you can require, as part of the service level agreements with your caterer or uh, the waste disposal um, company, um, that they think about food waste. So um, that caterers, for example, don't put all the food out at once. They put it out in small batches. I mean, everywhere you look, we have an ability to influence different organizations or different people. And then if just putting it through, uh, putting it through, having a lens of, Okay, where is there any food waste that's occurring in this process or in this place? And then raising awareness about it, um, I think, will go a long way. So, other practical tips. I mean, you freeze, obviously. Freezing stuff, I freeze everything. Um, and there's really good tools out there, websites, Love Food, Hate Waste yep. is one, where you'll be told what, you, what you're able to freeze, how to freeze it, mm-hmm. all sorts of tips and tricks. But, yeah, and there's so many... Um, Facebook groups and um, forums where people are chatting about this. So joining some of the sustainability or zero waste forums is a great idea. And I'm trying to think of other just super practical things. I mean, you can even freeze milk. Like I'll freeze, mm-hmm. if I have a half a pint of milk, I'll just pop it in the freezer before I go away. And get creative in the kitchen, um, I guess, is obviously a huge, you know, consider it a challenge to use up everything. A very simple thing, um, which I love the idea of and I do do, is um, create just um, a box or a tub and put call it the eat me tub and every day put the things in there that need to be eaten um, so a lot of times they'll be at the back of your fridge some ginger mm-hmm. some of mine right now actually some, you know some ginger some, mm-hmm. something that you've forgotten about because you just don't see it really yeah. and put something in the eat me fridge and put it front and center so that when you open the fridge looking for something to eat, you're like, okay, actually, that you know that needs to be eaten today. I'm going to eat that first before I forget about it. That's a really good idea. Mm. I like that idea. It's mm. nice. Do you have a typical week? Do you structure it in any way? I mean, I'm, everyone at Olio is remote working, um, and that is um, that means a little bit that we work 7 but it also means that we have incredible flexibility to structure the day, our days that suit us. Um, Tess and I are both in our early 40s, and we've got kids. And we are sort of at the point in our lives where we want to own our own work-life balance. Um, so my, I generally wake up very early um, before my son is awake um, and get a few hours of work in, um, sort of from 6 to 8, and then take him to school and get him ready for school. And then I usually go to the gym or to a yoga class and then come back, work for a few hours, pick them up from school. And yeah, that's sort of, there's sort of like periods in my day that are, that are sacred, usually with regard to school, drop off and pick up and, and yoga. Um, but, um, I like to get a head start on the day by getting up early and starting the day with a zero, with an empty inbox. I'm a really big believer in having a tidy inbox. Um, so I like to try and have you know, sort of no more than four or five emails in there. Um, like each day needs to be cleared down mm-hmm. to that level. 
That's impressive because you must get a lot of emails. <laughs> you do. Uh, there's a system. There's a very, there's a lot of great productivity podcasts out there, productivity yeah. systems. But you know, you should never open an email twice. Right? Joey was saying that. Mm. If you open it, you either need to do it. Yeah. Um, you need to delegate it, or you need to defer it. Yeah. And what, if you can get into that rhythm, because um, it's quite stressful, and you can miss important emails if you know it's running over onto two pages and. Yeah. And it still stays in your mind. You're still thinking, I need to get back to that person. You're thinking about how to phrase it. Absolutely. So it's still to do. It's still there. Yeah, it's yeah. noise. It's definitely a lot of noise. Yeah, that's a good word. Also, I think um, when I let my email pile up, then I could spend a whole day doing nothing but email. And then I don't actually have time where I've run out of email, right? Which in a lot of ways is sort of like the easy stuff to deal with. And I need to like do mm-hmm. something hard like you know create a new spreadsheet or work on presentation that takes sort of more you know dedicated time so I find that if I can get my email down I don't have any excuses um to do some of the harder stuff yeah Mm. that's good yeah that's a good good tip um and you mentioned yoga which obviously is great for well-being is there is there anything else that you sort of personal strategies you have for keeping in track of your own health I'm a really big believer in sleep. I try and get eight hours every night. Mm-hmm. And I don't always, but I, I usually do. Um, and I, I just sort of have this belief that sleep is just completely ignored as a, an area that we need to be give as much attention to as diet and exercise. And so I, I definitely... Not sleeping is, has been championed, and it's all about, yeah, about how little sleep you can get away with rather yeah. than yeah yeah no I, I love my sleep um and I, I try and get eight, a solid eight hours every night I definitely um am a, a bit of a sort of yoga or exercise addict and I like to make sure that I've got that time five or six days a week at least I'm um I'm a lifelong vegetarian I was born and raised as a vegetarian and I love to cook so my diet you know by definition is more or less um, relatively healthy, um, but I certainly, you know, like to go out. I like to. I'm social. I love red wine, love cheese. So I think everything in moderation, really. Mm-hmm. And also, I tend to have a bit of a mentality of I'm like good during the week, and then I can eat and you know do whatever I want on the weekends. That's great. So, what's the future for Olio? You mentioned that you were subscale. What kind of looks like scale to you? What are you aiming for? Well, we'll hope to be close to a million users by the end of the year, closer to maybe three, basically tripling in size each year, which doesn't take long before that adds up to a lot. Mm. Uh, you know, our, our our absolute goal is to is to try and get to a billion users. Now, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take um, many years. Um, but I I think when we cross oh gosh, I don't know, everything sounds like a lot right now, but you know, they're the 10 million mark, the 100 million mark, like those are going to be incredible milestones. You know, if we can get to 100 million users globally, um, you know, thinking about their food waste, their food or their waste or collecting, you know, thinking about it, like then we'll have really made a major impact and proven, and I think we've already probably proven that it's a mainstream thing. There's main, There is mainstream appeal. I mean, if you think about... Craigslist, or which is in the U.S., but Craigslist, or Gumtree, or Spock, or eBay, you know, the idea of a peer-to-peer economy is not new. 
right? Um, and there's um, in the non-food, right, in the household and clothing, etc. sector, the selling or giving um, and exchanging of goods is completely normal and common mm-hmm. and definitely at scale. There are definitely a billion people doing that. Yeah. So th- there's uh, no no reason to believe that, there's every reason to believe that um, in a new category such as food, we can get um, to the same scale. I would encourage everyone who's... Um, you know, wants to help build a more sustainable food fu- food future to obviously download and use the app, um, but to tell their friends and family um, and also think about their workplace. You know, w- workplaces, um, there's a huge opportunity to help workplaces become zero food waste um, and they can, um, we can help them do that. Yeah, and I was just thinking perhaps we can set a challenge to listeners to download the app, share one sure. piece yeah. of food, even if it's a carrot, a grapefruit, and let us know how you get on. Yeah. Yeah. So people can download the app in any app store, right? The app is free and it's available in the app store and in Google Play. But for those who may not have access to a smartphone, yeah. um, it's, there's also a desktop app, um, which is at oleoex.com. And your, do you have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? We have all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, it should be pretty straightforward if you search for Oleo Food Sharing Revolution. Um, probably easier than sharing all the handles right now because they're all right. some variety. They unfortunately sure. weren't organized enough to get the same handle across all the platforms. Um, but Oleo Food Sharing Revolution, we'd love to see people on social sharing pictures of um, food that they've collected or that they've shared, feel, sharing stories of um, the neighbors that they've met in the process. Um, so yeah, come join our Food Sharing Revolution. Yeah, we'd love to hear that too. So if you have any stories, then do let us know. Do let us know how you get on with the challenge. I did it. I actually had the app already, but I hadn't used it for a little while. And I did actually have a collection of sort of dry foods that I couldn't bear to throw away because they're perfectly fine to eat. And after talking to Sasha, I thought, you know, I've got to put them on the app. I don't know why I didn't think of it before. So yeah, it was a success. I put loads on there. I had quite a few baking ingredients and I also had some dried beans and things that I'm too lazy to soak. I put those on there for other people who are um, have the inclination to do that. And yeah, it was really successful. I took my photo, um, added a little caption and arranged a time with people to meet and yeah, it's all fine went really well I really recommend it and for those times where you're going on holiday and you know that you've got half a pot of yogurt in the fridge or a carrot and you just it's not quite the quantity that you could take to a food bank or something or a local charity it's perfect that the app is designed to solve those tiny bits of food waste yeah so give it a go and tell us how you get on. I'm very interested to hear about it. Well done. I definitely need to take up the challenge this week. (laughs) Um, I hope you enjoyed that episode and the series. (laughs) Yeah. And um, please, yeah, we've said it already, but please don't forget to leave us a review or five stars. We really appreciate it and it helps other people find the podcast. Yeah, so subscribe to the podcast and you'll get a notification as soon as the first episode of season four rolls out. Exactly. We've already started recording a few episodes for season four. We've got some really exciting guests and we can't wait to share those conversations with you soon. 
Bye. Bye.